0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content. But their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at Applications are due February 13th.
1: Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'd like to take a minute to introduce you to the bariatric team again at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. My name is Corey McBride and I'm the chief of minimally invasive and bariatric surgery. And I'm joined by my colleague, Tiffany Tanner, who's an associate professor of surgery and also has a very robust bariatric practice. She serves as our residency program director as well. I've been in academic bariatric surgery for over 20 years. And one of the most common questions I get from medical students and other trainees is who's eligible for bariatric surgery? And this is a great question, but to answer it, we really need to back up a little. Prior to 1991, the National Institutes of Health put together two different consensus panels that based on the literature that time actually did not recommend bariatric surgery. But finally, in 1991, when the NIH put their consensus panel together and evaluated the literature of that time, both the risks and the benefits of bariatric surgery were used, and they were able to create a set of recommendations. The literature at that time covered two procedures the open vertical banded gastroplasty and the open ruin y gastric bypass. After they reviewed the literature, their recommendations were to consider bariatric surgery if a patient had a BMI greater than or equal to 40 even if there were no comorbidities yet, because we already knew at that time, patients didn't live quite as long. They also recommended considering bariatric surgery if the BMI was greater than or equal to 35, if the patient had high-risk comorbid conditions. And they gave us a pretty specific list at that time. Severe diabetes, life-threatening cardiopulmonary problems, such as sleep apnea, Pickwickian syndrome, which is pulmonary hypertension, and cardiomyopathy. But they also had a phrase in there, that was problems that interfere with lifestyle or employment or family function. Unfortunately, many of the insurance companies since then sort of forget about that last one and look at very specific specific comorbidity definitions. When I tell learners that we've been using criteria from 1991 until this year, usually the medical students are quick to point out that these criteria are older than they are. However, 1991 actually makes them older than most surgery residents. Tiffany, do you want to explain the problems of using such outdated criteria? I'd love to.
0: First, this consensus panel was trying to look at the risk and benefits and create a set of recommendations that had clear benefit for the patient when balanced against the risk. As Corey mentioned, the only two operations considered were the open vertical banded gastroplasty and the open rune-y gastric bypass. These have significantly different complications versus benefits to what the procedures that we perform today. Neither one of these are still performed today, and we continue to use their risk-benefit profile and apply it to operations that have much fewer risks, such as laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy, the laparoscopic Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, and the laparoscopic single anastomosis duodenal uh, switch with sleeve, also known as the SADS In addition, the body of literature demonstrating the benefits has shown multiple benefits that were not known about in 1991. There are entire books written about the benefits of bariatric surgery, but we're going to try to condense this into the most recent studies. First, the improvement in diabetes control with bariatric surgery has been shown, including in class 1 obesity. The most frequently cited trial is the Stampede trial. In this prospective randomized controlled trial, 150 patients with type 2 diabetes and a BMI of 27 to 43 were randomized to bariatric surgery versus intensive medical management. The goal was to determine the percent of patients who were able to obtain a hemoglobin A1C less than six without medications. The five year data was then published in 2017, and it showed that after five years, only two of 38 patients in the medical arm had achieved this endpoint. However, 23 to 29% of bariatric surgery patients had a hemoglobin a1c of less than 6% at 5 years without any medications and, dep- and this kind of depended on the operation in patient in addition patients who remained on medications used statistically significant less medications than preoperatively with 89% of insulin users off insulin with hemoglobin a1c less than 7% at 5 years and we all know this has a dramatic impact to health and weight overall. In addition to decreasing medication use and diabetes control, there is good evidence that bariatric surgery decreases the risk of major adverse cardiac events in patients with type 2 diabetes and obesity. In 2019, Dr. Uh, Doctor Armenian and the group at the Cleveland Clinic published in JAMA their results that compared 2,287 patients who had metabolic surgery against match controls in a 1 to 5 ratio at There was a statistically significant decrease in diabetic nephropathy, coronary artery disease, and heart failure, as well as a non statistical trend in atrial fibrillation and cerebrovascular disease. The cumulative all case mortality, all cause mortality for the metabolic surgery patients at five years was still higher than 10%, while in the medical cohort, it was closer to 18%, and the hazard ratio was 0.59 for the treatment arm.
1: I agree. You know, over the last 32 years, we've truly begun to appreciate the impacts of metabolic and bariatric surgery on mortality, but not just the mortality from cardiovascular or major adverse cardio events. In the last couple of years, there have been several fascinating papers that deal with the interaction between obesity and cancer. In 2019, Dr. David Ardenburn Um, and colleagues reported over 22,000 patients who'd had surgery and matched them one to three to patients who did not. Patients were matched based on sex, age, BMI, and baseline comorbidities. And they found that at three and a half years, there was a 33% lower hazard risk for solid organ cancers in patients who'd had bariatric surgery. And the effect was even more pronounced when they focused on the obesity-associated cancers, such as breast, colon, endometrial, pancreas. The same group followed up in 2022 with an even larger study that now had over 30,000 patients. And it showed that patients who had undergone metabolic and bariatric surgery had a 32% lower risk of developing cancer and a 48% lower risk of cancer-related deaths. Because of the studies we've told you about, plus hundreds of others, the overwhelming evidence is that there are benefits to metabolic and bariatric surgery. The American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery, in collaboration with the International Federation for Surgery of Obesity and Medicine, or IFSO, has created a new joint statement on metabolic and bariatric surgery and its indications. It's an excellent literature review of the studies we've talked about, plus many others, and I encourage you to read it. This statement was simultaneously published in Obesity Surgery and SOARD, I think, to stress its importance. And it really puts forward new indications that we believe all metabolic and bariatric surgeons should be using in evaluating patients for surgery. In addition to setting an indication or a threshold for surgery, it also covered several issues that were not covered in the 91 paper.
0: The ASMBS and IFSO do acknowledge the limitations of using BMI to determine indications for surgery. However, it remains the most widely used criteria and is easy to calculate. There is clear evidence that metabolic and bariatric surgery is effective across all BMI classes. We no longer use terms such as severe obesity or morbid morbid obesity, but instead use class 1 obesity for a BMI of 30 to 34.9, class 2 obesity for a BMI of 35 to 39.9, and class 3 for a BMI greater than 40. If you remember the paper we cited earlier comparing surgery versus intensive medical management, the cohort was BMI of 27 to 43, there was a real benefit for class 1 obesity and type 2 diabetes. We know that medical weight loss programs can be successful and durable with class 1 obesity with comorbidities. Therefore, for this group, it is recommended to try medical weight loss first. However, if the trial of non-surgical therapy is not successful in ameliorating the comorbidities, then surgery should be considered for patients with hypertension, dyslipidemia, Obstructive sleep apnea, cardiovascular disease, including coronary disease, heart failure, and atrial fibrillation, asthma, fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, chronic kidney disease, poly- ovar- polycystic ovarian disease, infertility, reflux, pseudotumor cerebri, and bone and joint disease. However, class two and class three medical weight loss is not as effective or durable. Metabolic and bariatric surgery is strongly recommended regardless of the presence or absence of obesity related to comorbidities in these class.
1: You know, I was particularly struck in this paper that while for class one obesity, they do recommend a trial of medical weight loss, they do not define a time period because there is also a very good body of literature that says mandated uh, trials of weight loss before metabolic and bariatric surgery are do not predict success with surgery and do not um, or or compliance. And so I thought it's really important to point out that while they suggest trying medical weight loss first, they don't put a number of months or a certain um, medications or other things that need to be tried. And there's no mention of this when talking about class two and class three, because the evidence is pretty clear from the literature that these are just obstacles and delaying surgery. And the patient is just sicker three months, six months, nine months later than they were when they started the process.
0: I think this is really challenging because a lot of insurance companies do mandate these time periods, which we know are very arbitrary at times, and to your point, do Can and delay care for patients.
1: Right. There's no evidence-based medicine that recommends a a strict um, preoperative medical weight loss program for class two and class three obesity. It appears to just be a delaying tactic. But the other thing that I think is really important about this new paper from ASMBS, and if so, is they really delve into some of the populations that were not present in the last consensus conference. You know, one of the criticisms of using BMI as a threshold is that BMI is the same no matter what your sex, your gender, your age, your ethnicity. It's not specific enough when we're trying to talk about individuals. It really is a population-based metric. It is a surrogate for percent body fat, but it's not perfect. So for example, individuals from Asia or of Asian descent have different visceral and ectopic fat distribution than other racial groups. And as a result, they are at higher risk of severe diabetes and cardiovascular disease at a lower BMI than, say, a patient of Caucasian descent. Therefore, based on the international literature, um, this paper and these set of guidelines support the idea that metabolic and bariatric surgery should be adjusted downward Uh, for patients who are from Asia or of Asian descent. So instead of a BMI of 30 with diabetes, we should really be considering a BMI of about 27. And somewhere around 32 to 33 is where they should be being considered for surgery, even if they do not have a major comorbidity yet. There's also no mention of age in the original guidelines. When I started doing this 20 years ago, 55 was considered an elderly bariatric surgery patient. Uh, I no longer have the same perspective on the world that I did 20 years ago. Um, And like most bariatric surgery surgeons and programs, my uh, number has gone up. There are now multiple studies that show safety and efficacy of patients in their 60s and into their 70s. Now, there is at least one paper that suggests a slightly higher complication rate in patients in their 70s, but it is not a dramatically higher complication rate, and that slight increased risk of complications is still balanced against the overwhelming benefits that they might have. So one of the... uh, things in this, uh, the ASMBS if so guidelines is rather than using an age cutoff, we really should be looking at the individual patient and what their status is. So consider frailty, malnutrition, cognitive capacity, smoking status, rather than using age.
0: I think this also kind of highlights some of the other things that the paper was talking about, which is metabolic surgery in the high-risk patient or controversial patient. So again, things like BMI greater than 60, patients with cirrhosis, or patients with heart failure, these should not be truly contradictions to surgery in general. I think these patients do need to be more closely looked at and optimized prior to surgery and have to be looked at at an individual basis about how they will tolerate the surgery itself as opposed to a true contraindication.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if you go back to that 1991 consensus conference, they listed things such as severe cardiopulmonary disease, severe liver disease as absolute contraindications. And I think they have shifted over time to becoming relative contraindications. So it depends on the patient. It depends on how much their disease has progressed. It also depends on the center. So not every bariatric center should be doing patients who are on a liver transplant list with the exception of their weight, or doing patients with an LVAD in place. But certainly in centers that have the infrastructure, the resources, the medical subspecialists to try to support the program, this is an absolute amazing population. I mean, there's nothing better than hearing that the patient you did bariatric surgery on six months ago got a heart transplant last night because they now met the weight criteria, the comorbidity resolution criteria, and you realize you've just helped them get a new lease on life. Um, Children um, and adolescents were also not addressed uh, 32 years ago. Um, And it really took time for a body of literature to start to collect that showed that uh, children and adolescents could be safely done. Now, the ASMBS did release an adolescent criteria paper um, about 10 years ago as well that did start to establish what we should look like, look at for kids and teens. Um, but it's been really uh, stressed more in these current versions. You know, there are multiple studies. Um, probably the one i followed over the years was the Teen Lab Study, Um, looking at teenagers and their weight and and health improvements over time and there have been multiple sub-analysis of the teen labs that have been published looking at their cardiovascular risks their mobility their mental health issues and as a body of literature I think it's incredibly supportive of the idea that we can safely do surgery on children and adolescents Now, early in the bariatric surgery literature, there were also concerns raised that surgery could impact their height growth or their sexual development, Um, but that has now been looked at many times over the years, and there are no studies that show that metabolic or bariatric surgery negatively impact their puberty, their development, how tall they end up being. Therefore, criteria such as a tanner stage or bone growth should not be being used, Instead, what the ASMBS and ifso recommends is using BMI greater than, than the one hundred and twentieth one hundred and twenty percent of the ninety fifth percentile, which is the definition in in children and adolescents of class two obesity, or a BMI of one hundred and forty percent over the ninety fifth percentile, which is the definition of class three obesity. Um, There's also evidence to support the use of metabolic and bariatric surgery in patients with syndromic obesity with a high genetic component, patients with developmental delays or who might be on the autism spectrum, or a history of trauma, including brain trauma that might be contributing to increasing appetite and eating. So again, I think what this paper is really trying to do and what these guidelines are is it's not about age. It's about the individual patient, their support, your program support. Um, and what is the best thing for the individual patient?
0: I think the other thing that the paper does a really nice job out of calling out is bridge to treatment or how do you get this patient population to tolerate or have better outcomes for certain operations. And the operations that they particularly call out are joint arthroplasty, abdominal wall hernia repair, and organ transplant. We know that patients with a high BMI have higher risk of complications, including surgical site infections, and ultimately failure of their initial operation, whether that's hernia recurrence or recurrence of pain after joint arthroplasty or degeneration much faster, or higher risk of of, uh, having a return of organ failure. So we know that these patients overall will do better going into these operations with a lower BMI.
1: One of the things I love about papers like this, though, is sometimes they find a paper I've never seen before. And this was one of the examples. So um, when talking about joint replacement, uh, they referenced a paper that was actually published in 2020. Um regarding uh, knee arthroplasty and they randomized the patients but essentially they they took 82 patients and they randomized them to either bariatric surgery prior to a knee replacement or non-operative weight management before the knee replacement and i think as we would anyone who's in this field would expect Um, the patients who had bariatric surgery before their knee replacement did better and had fewer complications. But what I thought was really interesting is of the group that was randomized to bariatric surgery, 29% of them ended up not needing their total knee replacement because their joint pain and symptoms were better after weight loss. And so again, love this whole paper because it's really opened my eyes to some literature that I had just missed in trying to stay up to date.
0: I I think that the other thing, you know, so one of the other parts of my practice, I do abdominal reconstruction. And so I talk to patients about their weight, you know, on a regular basis when you're talking about hernia surgery. We know that for every point that a patient has a BMI greater than 35, it dramatically increases their risk of complications for hernia surgery. And so addressing their weight before surgery really helps for better outcomes long-term. I think that paper just really, this paper really just emphasizes how overarching weight can really impact patients' health.
1: Absolutely. This paper does not actually touch on The benefits, you know, I think COVID and the pandemic also brought up to many of us that, you know, obesity is a real disease and it has real consequences. And I'm trying to be an optimist that this will help insurance companies and employers really realize we need to treat obesity. You know, we hope you've really enjoyed this discussion. Like I said, these ASMBS, if so, guidelines uh, or indications for surgery, I think are very important. They're a huge step forward in where we were. Um, and I think to what really emphasizes that is uh, both obesity surgery and sword published this simultaneously to make sure we were sort of um, get the word out to the best of our ability. But the other is. The editorial boards of both journals have now said in the future, if you write a paper on metabolic and bariatric surgery, these are the guidelines you should be referencing. They really don't want to see future papers continuing to perpetuate the 1991 standards so that the entire field of metabolic and bariatric surgery moves into the current standards. So to summarize Um, Bariatric surgery is indicated for patients with a BMI over 35 or class 2 obesity, regardless of the presence or absence of comorbidities, and there is no proven benefit for medical weight loss or any kind of supervised weight management program before surgery. Um, Surgery is also indicated for a BMI greater than or equal to 30 with comorbidities that have failed durable weight loss or comorbidity resolution with medical weight loss. Um, And then finally, as I mentioned, these numbers need to be adjusted for patients uh, from Asia or of Asian descent. And this really does open the door to talking about patients at the extreme ends of age. Children have actually been operated on down to as low as age five with good and durable results. Certainly the adolescent population, uh, but I wouldn't be sort of Doing my job, if I didn't remind people that these really, these patients probably really should be done in the context of a MBSA QIP certified comprehensive center with adolescent verification or an adolescent center, because while we absolutely know they can be safely operated on, they do sometimes need different support structures than adults need. And then also the other extreme of age. And that many of the former absolute contraindications are now relative contraindications within the context of your program. So that's what we wanted to talk about today to really get out the word and make sure people understood. And we certainly hope all the bariatric surgeons who hear this will change the letters that they send to insurance companies using these new guidelines. And we'll use this paper as support for why these operations are clinically indicated in all of the populations we've talked about. We hope you have a great 2023. And until next time, this is the BTK Bariatric Surgery Team. Stay safe, stay healthy, and go Huskers.
0: Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review.